0: But I first want to start with a a bit of a story after I have a word of prayer about a pastor in uh, Germany that uh, saw a wonderful work of God in his church. And I think it's instructive as we begin, but I want to kneel first. Father in heaven, here we are. Before your face with a desire to learn more, expressing a desire to be revived and expressing a desire to to be so filled with your love and so compelled by the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit that we would go out and seek those who don't know you, that we would, Father, try to make a difference for those who are less fortunate. But we know that none of that happens because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It only happens as a miracle of divine grace takes place in our hearts. And Father, I'm asking that you would draw near this evening and you'd do for us what we can't do for ourselves and in too many cases don't even want it to be done. I wish, Jesus, you were here. We would know then for sure they would not waste their time. But I've been chosen. That's a sobering responsibility. But they still need to hear from you through me. Please, take me out of the picture, put your thoughts, your words in my mouth, and then take those words and change them to whatever is needed this evening. Please forgive me and forgive my friends, Lord, of everything that would keep us from hearing your voice and from your hearing our voices. Please, help us to be meek and humble. Help us to have hearing that can hear and hearts that are willing to accept. Because, Lord, there is no reason to come together to pray and to learn if we are not changed. So I'm praying for success, Lord, but not my success and not this church's success. I'm praying for your success. Might you be lifted up. Might you be honored. Might you be worshiped. Might you be obeyed, Lord. Please, do it now. Do it for Jesus' sake, I pray. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a uh, pastor in Germany in a little town called Hermannsburg. This would have been in the 1800s. And uh, he writes in what I'm looking at about having gone to the funeral of one of his members. And it's a, it's a touching story. He says, I was sitting next to or standing by the bedside of a sick laborer, not a man with a lot of money at all. He had a wife and four children. He had been sick for three weeks And by that time, his sickness had taken all the money that that family had. They only had just a little bit left. Death was near, but he was rejoicing. He wished only that once again they might gather together as a a church family, at least some of the friends and family, to have a communion service together. And so they did. They had the communion service, and the pastor noticed that as they were singing together that there were some tears coming down the cheeks of this man who was so sick that was going to soon be laid to rest. The pastor said, I said nothing, and we celebrated the Lord's death. But his eyes continued to stream with joy. Finally, we came to an end. The neighbors left. They shook his hand. And then the pastor asked, as he was alone with the man and his wife and the children, Why were you weeping? Were you perhaps troubled by the thought of leaving your wife and children? The man looked at him with a reproachful look in his eyes, as if he didn't quite understand why a pastor would be saying that. He said, Does not Jesus stay with them? Has not the Lord said that he is a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widow? No, they are well cared for. I have prayed the Lord that he will be their guardian. Is it not so, wife? You are not troubled. You are not afraid. You believe in Jesus. Surely, she replied, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Why then are you weeping? Asked the pastor for joy. Because I'm thinking if it was so beautiful here, how beautiful it will be someday up in heaven. Then he motioned to his wife. And he pointed to a little saucer and she went and took a little plate in which there were just six small coins. All that remained of his store. And he explained, he said, this is all that is left after the funeral expenses are paid for. This is all that our family has left. But we have talked it already and we want to give it so that others can know about Jesus before they die. We want to give all the rest that we have. And what remains for you, asked the pastor, She responded, The Lord Jesus. (laughs) The Lord Jesus. He is very good, and he is very rich. Actually, it was the man that said those words. So I took those six coins and laid them in the mission box as a great treasure. He said, I must say that it was a struggle for me to later use them, as he requested, knowing this was all the money that this poor man had. When this pastor came to his little town, it was not a very spiritual church. Uh, it wasn't an Adventist church. This was in the 1800s. Uh, it was a Lutheran church. And one time, when his father had been pastor, they'd actually noticed a, a bottle of alcohol being passed down the aisles, uh, during or down the pews. And so, it was a, a very troubled church. But when he finally came to the ministry of that church, he began to pray for the members. Um, in his younger days, he'd been athletic, he'd been strong, he had been uh, very good as a student, but he had been lectured right out of his belief in God. And then finally, listening to the Bible being read, he had returned to God. And it's interesting, as sometimes happens. Instead of you know life being easy, suddenly he developed an illness where he had great difficulty and had a lot of pain, and that remained with him the rest of his life. And because of that, he wasn't always able to sleep at night, but instead of pining and complaining, he spent the time he could not sleep praying. And so as a pastor, he began praying for his church. And as a result of those prayers, there began a 17-year period of continuous revival. Now it's interesting, when he came to the, uh, to the church, he had a, a bit of a, well, first of all, As I said, he was constantly praying for his members. Secondly, uh, he talked to the members and he, he asked them to do a couple of things for him. First of all, he said, I am committed to knowing and only doing God's will. He said, I promise you that whatever happens, I'll do my best to know what God's will is and to do that. And He said, I beg that you would make the same commitment that in every area of your life, every day of the year, this is Dan's paraphrase, that you would promise to always want to know God's will in order to do it. That was his first request. The second request was, he said, I'm convinced that God can only bless a pure and clean church. And I'm asking that all of you would make a commitment to lead as clean and as pure lives as you possibly can. He also asked one other thing, and that is, he said, It won't always be easy, and he was a living embodiment of of a ministry that wasn't easy. But he said, I promise not to abandon you when the going gets tough, but you must promise not to abandon me either. And so they began, you know, this, this, this participative ministry where they made a commitment to live in a certain way, and he made a commitment to lead in a certain way, and God truly began blessing. Now, it's interesting, this will be of interest to to Judy and Julia and those of you that work with ASAP, and I think there's maybe someone here from AFM, maybe more, that he was also convinced that a healthy church was a mission-driven church. And though he lived in the middle of nowhere in Germany and it was just a small church without many funds, he decided that they would buy some land and and, uh, actually they bought something with a house and they began training missionaries to go to Africa as missionaries. Now remember, this is just a small church, no no great resources, but just convinced that a healthy church is a busy church for Jesus. Did you hear me? And so they trained, and eventually uh, it was time to send the missionaries. And there was quite a few of them. I think there were 16 going. And uh, they looked into the cost to send the missionaries and discovered that actually it actually was so expensive they could build their own boat to send the missionaries. So the pastor made it a matter of prayer. And he got someone to build the boat for him, and they made fun of him, but he said, God instructed Noah to build a boat. God can help us build a boat. And they did just that. It was called the Candace uh, after the Ethiopian queen, you know, that uh, that we read about in the Bible. And since they were wanting to go to Ethiopia, that's the name they gave it. And uh, so they built this boat. They sent the people off. For a while, it disappeared. And the members came and said, what are we going to do if, 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 if everyone is lost? He said, we will repent. We will rebuild and we will resend more missionaries. Because he was so convinced that there was a direct connection between God's blessing and God's work you know, in the community and in the world. Um, the boat eventually arrived, and before he died, they actually had uh, about multiple mission stations in Africa. They had a work going on in in India as well. He had a missionary publication which people begged him to publish, And by that time, there were between thirteen and 14,000 subscribers all over the world. And it's fascinating, because as he would pray and ask God to bless, even though there weren't many resources there, invariably the money would come for whatever God wanted. Uh, I've read a lot of the story of Hudson Taylor and and George Mueller. And you find that in their lives, they often would pray. and, And God was never late, but he was often not early. Literally, George Mueller often said, Lord, we don't have money to pay today. And then the next day, and this would go on for months at a time, if you if you think that George Mueller had an easy time, you're mistaken. Read the story, read the narratives. But in Pastor Harms' case, Lewis Harms' case, uh, God always seemed to provide ahead of time. And he was convinced that it was God's will, God would provide. And uh, so, for example, when he decided how many missionaries to send, it wasn't based on the funds in hand, it was based on the need. But he also didn't believe in... In begging, so he didn't ask people for money, and he didn't believe in debt, so God always brought it ahead of time somehow. So uh, there's a picture of a church that that didn't have a lot of potential, but the pastor said, "Here's some things that are important. One, we want to know and do God's will, and he asked them to do that, and they made a commitment. And if all of you were to do that in this church, what a blessing, you know, it would bring. Secondly, he said, you know, God will only bless a pure and clean church." And that is still true in our day just as much. And if we would all make individual decisions, if we would all be committees of one, committed to lead pure, clean lives, it would make a wonderful, wonderful difference. And then uh, he chose to be busy uh, for Jesus. And as I will share with you in a moment, it makes a wonderful, wonderful difference in the health of a church. Tonight, Uh, For those of you that were here last night, you know kind of where we are. For those of you that are here for the first time, the first night we talked about the need of revival. It is our greatest and what? Most urgent of all our needs, right? should be our first work. Um, It's sad that the Pentecostal experience has not continued. Pentecost should be the norm, not the exception, right? And uh, by the Lord's grace... You can experience that right here. I'm convinced of it. We must not have the sin of unbelief, okay? We must, you know, believe on the one hand what God says about how we should live, but then secondly, we should also believe that what God has promised He can bring. Um, the second night we talked about the pursuit of revival. And I pointed out to everyone that Ellen White says it's our work, and then she lists four things. It is our work by... First word is confession. The second word is humiliation. The third word is what? repentance, and the last word is earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions. And I pointed out that in the Adventist church, um, many Adventists primarily think of prayer when it comes to revival. And I think the order in many people's minds is prayer first, and then get to the other step, but often they never get beyond prayer. But it's interesting that in uh, Ellen White's writings, she actually starts with confession, then humiliation, then repentance, then earnest prayer and I pointed out, and we'll see the quote eventually, uh, she makes a statement, she says, there are many who confess, but they do not repent. So we can acknowledge that we've made a mistake, we can be sorry, but unless we're willing to humble ourselves, unless we're willing to make a U-turn in what is going on, uh, it will not do us any good, and we will not uh, see revival. Uh, The second point that I would make is that uh, we can pray until we are blue in the face. but unless we choose to meet the conditions of God's Word, um, if there is revival, it will either be superficial or it will be spurious. It will not be a genuine revival. And so we must follow the direction that God has given us. Uh, in the Bible, uh, in the Second Chronicles 7.14, there's the same schedule. You know, if my people who are called by my name will pray, right? And then it talks about this turning work. And it was after they'd done all of those things that the blessing was expected. So, I'm not opposed to prayer. But uh, it's like Joshua. When when there were some issues, what did God say? Get up off your knees, deal with the situation, and then you can be blessed. Now, I'm not looking for a witch hunt here. Please don't misunderstand me. But I'm just saying that, that it's not real popular in the church to talk about the things that need some addressing. Would you agree? And in my study lately, I've been rather surprised by what I don't hear talked about. You know, I thought I'd read the the writings of Ellen White quite a bit, but I discovered if you start at the bottom of the list instead of at the top of the list with the CD-ROM of her writings, uh, there's a lot of stuff you don't read about in in, in a lot of the books. So, taking upon myself to learn more of that, and it's been a blessing. Now, we are at the point of this evening that the talk is on what's to confess. And I want to talk about two things. Number one, we are exceptionally blind to our real condition. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to have you turn in the Bible to the story, but the story of the rich young ruler is very instructive. He was a person who was held in high regard by the religious authorities and the leaders of his day. We know that he was praying, he was fasting, he was going through all the ritual kinds of things. We know that he was sincere, and we know that he had a longing to be closer with Jesus, right? Right? We know that from the story. Because when he turned down Jesus' gracious offer, he turned away what? Sorrowing. Why? Because he realized that something had to change. Either he had to to go back and realize that something was going to be missing, or he was going to have to have an abrupt break from his past and take on a a mode of living that might not be respected. And it was a very real issue... um, Just this week, I I read a statement from Ellen White where she talks about the fact that the religion of Jesus was not respected by the Jews at all. Um, They thought that his religion was worthless because theirs was about appearances, his was about meekness. And so this rich young ruler who was probably into appearances suddenly confronted with the idea that your religion is of the heart, not the outside. Uh, It was not something he could live with. And so he comes and asks Jesus, you know, what is it that I lack? And Jesus asked him some questions, right? Jesus asked him about five of the commandments. And, um, and he listened and he answered he says, I kept all of these things from my youth, right? I bet he was feeling pretty good about it. And then Jesus said, there's only one thing that you lack. And I imagine he said, oh, finally I'll know the secret. And Jesus said what? Sell everything that you have. Okay? give to the poor and then follow me right now which commandments did Jesus skip? the what and the last one okay Jesus only mentioned five through nine which one would we typically say that that he was breaking The last one, the one about covetousness, right? Um, But I think that's a story where the significance is not what Jesus said, it's what he left unsaid. Because you see, if you are breaking the Tenth Commandment, which has to do with covetousness, that means you're worshipping another god. If you're breaking the Tenth Commandment, that means that there must be idols in your life that you are worshipping. If you're breaking the Tenth Commandment, apparently it means that you're using the name of God in vain. Because if you really were a Christian, if God said for you to give it up, you would happily say, whatever you say, and I'll follow. So, so he was misusing the name of God by his behavior. And apparently, if you break the Tenth Commandment, you're also breaking the Fourth Commandment. Did you know that? And I think that we have a problem realizing the claims of the First Four Commandments, and how if we break the later ones, actually we're breaking a lot more than we realized. And I have to tell you, my brothers and sisters, as I've been studying for this section, I realized, did you know that we're all idol worshippers? Have you ever thought about that? You still love me, don't you? I have to share, I have to share, because I feel like we are really under-educated, if I can say that. And so I'm going to... I'm going to touch some things that you've probably not thought about when it talks about when you talk about what's to confess. So, on the first hand, we're incredibly blind; we do not see our true condition. It's only by the grace of God that that we either see it or admit it, one or the other. Secondly, though, we must understand what are the big issues when it comes to what's to confess, because you know we might say, well, you know. Sin is killing another person, committing adultery, stealing, something like that. And, and certainly those are not things that we, would, that we would commend. But Ellen White makes a statement that even non-Christians would agree to those things, and that's not what it means to obey. Because you see, true obedience comes from the heart. True obedience is about motives and thoughts, and so it goes much, much deeper than that which you don't do to avoid consequences. Did you hear me? Many people are driven by consequences and appearances not because God has said so. And when we speak of obedience, it has to be based because God said it, not because we're afraid of some kind of consequence. Does that make any sense? In other words, if if you don't rob a bank, is it because God told you not to rob the bank, or is it because you're afraid of being thrown in jail? You tell me, obviously, that's a no-brainer. But what if you get into the minor details of life? What would it be? So, when we talk about this matter of sin, I believe these are the things that God is concerned about, that everything comes from. Number one, it's all about God's honor. It's all about God's honor. To what degree are we honoring God? You know, we are kind of the spectacles in in a great controversy. And unless we are living in a particular way, God cannot be vindicated. You know, Satan said, if they trust me, they'll be happy. God said, no, no my way is the best way. So, so God has some vested interest through his honor. Secondly, God has a passion for seeking and saving the lost. And because of his burden, God looks at the resources that he's shared with us differently than we do. Um, for example, we are stewards of our money, right? It's really not our money at all. It's God's money and he loans it to us. And it's because God has a greater purpose for sharing that money with us that he actually makes demands on it. That has to do with, you know, <laughs> I entrusted this so that you could use it to bless others, not to be stagnating pools and just turn it in on yourselves. Okay? It isn't about God saying, well, I don't want you to be blessed and, and I want you to live a miser living. It's more, I have a great purpose and, and I have a claim. There's another thing that God has a great claim on, which most of us don't appreciate. There was a man by the name of August Franke. He was kind of the, the mentor to George Mueller, but 150 years before, he ran an orphanage in Halle, Germany. And he made this statement, he said, the most valuable thing that I have is time. And when I give a person one hour of my time, that is more valuable than any amount of money I could give, because you can never replace your time. Okay? And so when God looks at the things that we do in our lives, God is saying, Your time is valuable. How are you using that time for my kingdom? Did you hear me? God has a, a purpose for your life, and it's not just to go home and, and you know and do whatever. I mean, Rose and I, you know, we're we are trying to live simpler lives to be able to have more time to serve God. And I think we should all have a, a concern. What can we do? to live in such a way that God will be able to make the best use of our time, which is the most valuable resource we have, and whatever money He's provided as well. Okay? Then the third thing that I think God is concerned about is how do we have a good relationship with Him? Okay? And therefore, God is concerned about the things that affect our bodies because it affects our relationship with God. God is concerned about the things that we spend our time in because some things will cause us to want to have a better relationship with God, some things will cause us to have less of an interest in having a relationship with God, etc. So those are, are three things, and there's probably more, but those are three things that came to my mind. One is the honor of God. To what degree is what we're doing in our lives honoring God? Secondly, to what degree are we making good use of the scarce resources that we've been given? And third, to what degree do the things in our lives affect our ability to have the close relationship with God that He wants us to have. So, with that in mind, I'd like you to turn in your little booklets now. And I'll tell you where. To about uh, number uh, 200. Line 200. There's uh, line numbers on the left. And uh, we will... uh, Just do a little bit of learning. But before we do, I'd like to quote a famous revivalist. His name was Jonathan Goforth. He makes the following statement. He says, We cannot emphasize too strongly our conviction that all hindrance in the church is due to sin. He said, We can't say this too strongly, that all hindrance in the church is due to sin. Uh, If you look at the history of revivals, you discover that they develop different ways. Um... Some of the people had what I would refer to more as preaching-based revivals. Uh, The the revivals that occurred in 1857 in our country were prayer-based. Jeremiah Lanfear felt convicted after praying much that he was to start a a noon prayer meeting in a church in in, uh, New York, and eventually that revival just went on and went over the ocean, etc. Other revivals took different forms. But some of the people, and I believe the revivals that were most enduring, were the revivals that began with an awareness of sin, confession, and seeking to be right with God. And I believe that that is the kind of revival that God wants us to have. Now, today we're talking about, or this evening we're talking about what's to confess. But tomorrow night, we're going to talk about reveling in God's mercy. We're going to talk about how God transforms us, those kinds of things. So please don't think that I'm obsessed with this part of it, but it's a very necessary first part because you cannot appreciate your salvation unless you realize the pit in which you find yourself. Okay? So that's where I'm going. Now, another person, the last name you recognize, I don't know if you know the lady, her name was Susanna Wesley. She actually gave the following definition of sin. And then we're going to look at the Bible. She said, whatever weakens your reason, okay, let me repeat that. It's not in your booklet, unfortunately. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience. In other words, makes your conscience less conscious, less uh, sensitive. Obscures your sense of God or takes off your relish of spiritual things. So whatever caused you to have less an in interest in God, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body, over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it might be in itself. Okay? She basically said, there are things that are perfectly innocent, but if they develop such an attraction in your life and they begin to consume so much time in your life, those will eventually no longer be innocent and right. Those have become an idol. And I think that we all suffer with idols as a result. Okay? Okay? It's not that things are necessarily inherently wrong, but you have to ask yourself the question, when everything is said and done, to what degree do you want to spend more time praying? To what degree are you more motivated to serve God, you know, in the neighborhood? Those really are the things that you should consider when you're evaluating your life. So we want to, uh, to look at a few things in the Bible, and then we're going to look at some quotes of Ellen White uh, with the limited time that we have. So, the, uh, when, when we talk about what is sin, what is the perhaps the most famous text in the Bible on that subject? What's the verse that comes to mind? What? Exactly. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's found in 1 John 3, 4. We're not going to look at that, but uh, that's correct. Now look at James chapter 4, verse 17. James chapter 4, verse 17. I want to lay a foundation. It says there, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him what? It is sin. So if we know something and we choose not to do it, James clearly said that becomes sin. And if you look at the parables, what you discover, it's not so much what people did that's the problem, it's what they left undone. Okay? It's what they left undone. It's not what they did. It's what they left undone that becomes the problem. So when James said... Now to him who knows but doesn't do it, to him it is sin, that is absolutely true. Romans 14, verse 23. Romans 14, verse 23. It says there, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat. For whatever is not from faith is sin. The point there, I believe, partly being We can pretend to be good for all the wrong reasons. Okay. We need to do what we do as a result of our worship and our relationship with God. Whatever is not of faith is is sin. Okay. Um, Obviously, there's the Ten Commandments. We've already mentioned the Ten Commandments, Um, and I'm going to just—we're just going to go through now some things in, in the quotations, if you're willing. And uh, and we will see uh, what she has to say on the subject. Notice two twenty five. Two twenty five. The sin which is indulged to the greatest extent and which separates us from God and produces so many contagious spiritual disorders is what selfishness. That is the greatest sin, and that's the one that the rich young ruler stumbled over. There can be no returning to the Lord except by self denial. Okay? If you want to return to God, self-denial is definitely a part of that pathway. And uh, you can you can read about the need for that in various places in the Bible. Notice uh, the next one, line 236. Self-exaltation and pride of position and self-importance were the sins of Satan in heaven. True religion dies out of the heart where these take possession and are developed in in the character. Notice, 239, The reason that more power does not attend the proclamation of the truth for this time is that there is too much reliance placed upon the ability of men, too much trust in the talent and tact of workers, and not enough reliance upon the arm of infinite power. Pride is another serious, serious issue that we all have. Pride is a serious issue to God being able I'm not going to read every line there. You'll have time to do that later. Here's one that we don't often think about um, self sufficiency. And why don't we look up a few verses here? Look at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. I love the, the major prophets. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. Woe to the rebellious children! says the Lord, who take counsel, but what? But not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Okay? Okay? Look at 9, 10, 11 that this is a rebellious people, thirty chapter 30, verse 9, 10, 11, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. It's almost shocking that people would say that. But do we not sometimes wish we would not hear don't we sometimes wish that uh, our comfort uh, would not be disturbed by, by such things? And then, of course, Revelation 3.17. You know, you say that you're rich and increased with goods, but what does God say? Wretched, naked, poor, miserable. And we don't even see that. Notice 2.49. The most hopeless, the most incurable of all sins is pride and self-sufficiency. This sin stands in the way of all advancement, all growth and grace. It has caused the ruin of thousands and thousands of souls. Okay? We won't go further. Um, We'll get to the repentance part later. The next one is self-complacency. 257. God sends to the church the greatest blessings he can give them in a knowledge of themselves. Satan is alluring them to sin that they may be lost. God gives a clear presentation of their sins that they may repent and be saved. The greatest danger of the world is that sin does not appear sinful. This is the greatest evil existing in the church. Sin is glossed over with self-complacency. Okay. Then 266. Oh, how many flatter themselves that they have goodness and righteousness when the true light of God reveals that all their lives they have only lived to please themselves. How often, and what percentage of our time, are we truly saying, Lord, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to please you? That should be second nature to all of us, shouldn't it? I I will freely admit that even times when, when I thought I was doing pretty well, I have to admit that I was much more pleasing myself than God. And I think that I share these quotations because this is something we need to do is go home and read these things and say, okay, God, help me to see myself. You know, how, how do things need to change if I'm going to truly be walking with you? Okay. Line 257, self-esteem. From the light which God has given me, I know that the Lord would do far more for us as a people if we would walk in humility before Him. Okay. She says, 280, but that which hinders your progress in a large degree is your self-esteem, your high opinion that you entertain of your own ability. If there was ever a place where self needed to die, it is here. Let us see the death struggle. Let us hear the dying groans. It's hard to become little in our own eyes. Micah 6.8 says, you know, He's shown the old men, what you should do. Part of that is to humble yourself. When I was taking a seminar years ago, uh, Dr. Murdoch told us it's to humble yourself in order to be able to walk with God. Unless you're willing to be humble, we will not walk with God. 287. You would be surprised if I didn't list this one. We need to learn that indulged appetite is the greatest hindrance to mental improvement and soul sanctification. With all our profession of health reform, many of us eat improperly. Okay? And I like 291, let the individual who is seeking to possess purity of spirit bear in mind that in Christ there is power to control the appetite. Okay? Now, I'm not throwing stones for the joy of throwing stones. I'm just saying, this is, this is, these are the things that are impacting either our ability to honor God our ability to go and serve God, our ability to have a relationship with God. And she says, indulge appetite keeps us from having the close relationship. And we are a blessed people. You would agree, right? I mean, society writes about Adventist. But my brothers and sisters, if you pull back the covers, we're not doing nearly as well as we should. Would you agree? Yeah. We're not doing nearly as well. Not throwing stones. I'm saying, all of you need to go home and say, God... Please help me to see things as they are. Then, withholding means. Malachi 3.10 and 11. Uh, You know the verses about, you know, people are asking, why aren't you blessing? God says, because you're robbing. You're withholding. Here's the quotation. 295. Men are robbing God, and with self-complacency they look up and say, wherein have we robbed thee? The answer comes in tithes and in offerings. There are men in the ranks of Sabbath keepers who are holding fast their earthly treasure. It is their God, their idol, and they love their money, their farms, their cattle, their merchandise, better than they love their Saviour, who for their sakes became poor. 301 at the end. Will such have the well done spoken to them? No, never. The irrevocable sentence, depart, will fall upon their startled senses. Christ has no use for them. Pretty serious words. Pretty serious words. I'm not being judged here, I'm just sharing the data. And you can do with it as God leads you, as you pray. I hope you will. Notice 3.13. The Lord will not, cannot bless churches, and will withdraw his spirit from all who serve themselves and dishonor God. Let's start at 3.11. When the Lord's portion, which He has reserved as His own in tithes and offerings, is used for common purposes, while the church is displaying the love of self-indulgence and self-gratification, the Lord will not, cannot bless churches, and will withdraw His Spirit from all who serve themselves and dishonor God. It says, God will not and cannot bless churches. Serious words, would you not agree? Look at the next one. Quarreling and relational differences. A sleepy, Christless church quarreling and surmising evil will have no reward and need look for no revival unless its members repent and do the first work. Would you agree that we are a sleepy, quarreling church these days? But wouldn't you agree? Do we have a few quarrels going on right now? Absolutely. Is there a problem with sleepiness? Absolutely. And what are the words there? What are the words there? They need look for no revival unless its members repent and do the first work. My brothers and sisters, we need to do more than pray. We need to pray for God to change our hearts and bring us back into unity with each other. Um, You know, uh, those are strong words, but I think they need repeating. Notice uh, 3.20. There are in our churches those who profess the truth who are not only hindrances to the work of reform, they are clogs to the wheels of the car of salvation. This class are frequently in trial. Doubts, jealousies, and suspicion are the fruits of selfishness and seem to be interwoven with their very natures. I shall name this class chronic church grumblers. They do more harm in the church than two ministers can undo. Okay? Okay. 332. Envy, evil surmising, backbiting, and fault-finding. Let these not be named among Christ's disciples. These things are the cause of the present feebleness of the Church. There's more. Ungodly amusement. Please understand. Please understand that God has a concern about how some things affect our desire to serve him and our ability to serve him, and I believe that's where some of this comes in. Speaking of a time of revival, 341, In every school Satan has tried to make himself the guide of the teachers who instruct the students. It is he who has introduced the idea that selfish amusements are a necessity. Students sent to school for the purpose of notice receiving an education to become evangelists, ministers, and missionaries to foreign countries have received the idea that amusements are essential to keep them in physical health, while the Lord has presented before them that the better ways to embrace in their education manual labor in the place of amusement. Okay? This amusement question of practice will soon become a passion that gives notice, disrelish to useful, healthful exercise of mind and body, which makes students useful to themselves and others. In other words... The issue there is all of those fun sports cause us to lose our passion and interest in Jesus. That's the issue. Um, 356, ask yourself, what bearing has the question of amusements on my religious life on my character as a Christian? Do the games in which you participate fit you to engage in prayer and in the service of God? Do they aid you to bring as much zeal and earnestness into the Lord's work as you put into the games you play? Okay? That was at 356. 356. Anyway, uh, 365, another era. Look ye and behold the idolatry of my people. And then it says, there were some who were striving for the mastery, trying to excel each other in the swift running of their bicycles. Um... There was a spirit of strife and contention among them as to which should be the greatest. The spirit was similar to that manifested in the baseball games on the college grounds. Said, my God, these things are an offense to God. I promise I would share the truth. It is there, isn't it? I think you need to know. I think we all need to know. 377, pleasure lovers may have their names upon the church records. They may stand high as worldly wise men, but they have no connection with the Christ of Calvary. Okay? We continue. Much to think about. And then there is the matter of compromise. 385, there's still, with as with ancient Israel a constant tendency among the professed people of God to depart from the Lord's instructions and to imitate the customs and practices of worldlings. 391 When the church rebukes fashionable follies demoralizing amusements extravagance and self-indulgence when Christianity is spiritual positive earnest and aggressive then the opposition of the world will be excited. As someone said the world can't hate us because to hate us it have to hate itself because we are so much like the world. Okay. Anyway, ungodly influence refers to the influence we have on others. I don't think I'll take the time to read that. But when we choose not to serve God completely, uh, we become responsible for what others have done. Actually, um, 405, when a man who has had great light, who's supposed to be led and taught by God, turns out of the way because of self-confidence, he makes false paths for his feet. He follows crooked practices, and many who have admired the supposed nobility and integrity of his character follow his example, thinking that the Lord is leading him. The false step he took resulted in thousands of false steps. So what we do has influence on others, and we become responsible. Now, 4.19. 4.19. There are many who do not make an entire surrender. They do not die to self that Christ may live in them. They adopt His name, they wear His badge, but they are not partakers of His nature. Okay? 423. Almost Christians, yet not fully Christians. They seem near the kingdom of heaven, but they cannot enter there. Almost but not wholly saved means to be wholly lost. No such thing as almost... Almost is wholly lost. Notice. 4.26 When you give up your own will, your own wisdom, and learn of Christ as he has invited you, then you shall find entrance into the kingdom of God. Entire unreserved surrender he requires. Give up your life to him to order, mold, and fashion. Take upon your neck his yoke. Submit to be led and taught as well as to lead and teach. Etc. God is looking for entire surrender. 423. This kind of sums it up. Why the Christian life is so difficult to many is because they have a divided heart. And as I have studied the Bible, as I have studied the writings of Ellen White, I am convinced the reason that there's such a struggle for victory is because there's Partial surrender. There's repeated statements that victory is only possible when we make an unreserved, complete surrender to God. Now, this is uh, this is kind of where we we come to the end of what I have in the booklet. But I wanted to just share one other one. Another year has now passed into eternity line four forty, with its burden of record. And the light which shone from heaven upon you was to prepare you to arise and shine to show forth the praises of him uh, to the world as his commandment-keeping people. You were to be living witnesses, but if no special endeavor of a high and holy character bears testimony before the world, if no higher effort has been made than that which is seen in the popular churches of the day, then the name of God has not been honored and his truth has not been magnified before the world. Okay? Starting just down a little ways, if they have had no greater appreciation of the manifest power of God than to eat and drink and rise up to place in ancient Israel, then how can the Lord trust His people with rich and gracious manifestation? If they act directly contrary in almost every respect to the known will of God and are found in carelessness, in levity, in selfishness, in ambition and pride, corrupting their way before the Lord, how can He give them another outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm going to share just three more little thoughts, and then, and then we're going to have some time for prayer. Um, I found this recently, and I'm sure there's some people who may have read it, but i would never read it quite this way. This is getting really personal. Will you forgive me for being really personal now? You will? Well, you're going to hear it anyway, whether you'll forgive me or not. I then saw a lack of cleanliness among Sabbath keepers. I saw that God would have a clean and holy people, a people that He can delight in. I saw that camp must be cleansed, or the Lord would pass by and see the uncleanness of the children and would not go forth with their armies to battle. I saw that God would not acknowledge an untidy and unclean person as a Christian. His frown was upon such. That has to do with God's honor. God is saying, unless you choose to live in a way that honors me, even by your appearance and by the way you live, God says, I can't really claim you as mine. Or in other words, I can't really bless you to the degree that I want to. Remember the children of Israel? They were told to keep the camp in a very orderly and and tidy way. Nothing has changed in our day in terms of what God wants us to be as His people. Uh, That's from... uh, I think it's in a couple of places, but I have it from... One BIO, I think that's the biography, 291, where she's quoted. And then here's another one that I found interesting. She's speaking of knickknacks. I'm getting very personal. Okay? If the room is decorated with these little ornaments and you would have an eye single to the glory of God, let these little idols be put away. But if this cannot be done and these ornaments must be exposed for your admiration, then handle them expeditiously. Do not take them up one after another. you dust them. Dream over each one, etc. Why? Because they're taking the time that God wants you to have to serve him and they originally took the money that he had in mind as well. And she actually says that, that the cause of God is hurting because we have idols around our houses that are unnecessary. I want revival. And I really believe that the things that I've talked about are things that are standing in the way of God being able to bless the church. Um, either that or we have to say we just choose not to believe what Jesus because I have quoted you directly. Now here's another one. Uh, when it, where I was this past weekend, I made a statement. I hadn't seen this ship, but it was a blessing. Um, I made the statement... Instead of cutting programs these days, we need to cut our personal expenses to make sure things can continue going forward. And she says the following, mission work must not cease because of limited means. Let every church member practice self-denial. In other words, God has a higher purpose for our financial resources. The Word of God gives the commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There is no restriction, no limit to the work, but there is the promise, Lord, with you always. Uh, now listen to this, abridge the work, limit your labors and uh, limit your labors and you remove your helper I repeat that shrink the work, stop trying to serve and she says you literally lose God from being your helper. Let me repeat it again. Abridge the work, limit your labors, and you remove your helper. The sickly, unhealthy state of the church reveals the church afraid to work, fearing that self-denial will be required. The presence of the Lord is ever seen where every energy of the church is aroused to meet the spiritual responsibilities. But many of the churches who have had the light of present truth are dwarfed and crippled by the evils existing in their midst, by the selfishness cherished by spending on self, that, that which should have been given to the Lord, etc., Okay, and, and she goes on the Lord looks with sadness upon those who are serving their idols with no care for the soul's perishing he cannot bless the church who feel it no part of their duty to be laborers together with God I want the blessings of God I don't care and I'm grateful I'm married to someone who feels like I do that whatever it means we want it by the grace of God and I know that many of you do too and I believe that the church that takes to heart some of the things that I've talked about and 99% of what I've talked about is right here in this booklet. If we will make it a matter of prayer and say, Lord, open our eyes and help us to see where we stand and we confess and say, Lord, it's true. We'll talk about what to do with, with, you know, what we learn tomorrow night. But if we will do our part and say, God, it's true. I've been, I've been living for myself. I've been living in such a way that, that it's really been dwarfing my relationship with you. I haven't been living in a way that was truly seeking your honor in every way. If those things can be turned around, I do believe the Holy Spirit will, be, will come flooding in. But until that happens, it will not happen. And we could talk about other things, you know? Honoring God in the way we keep the Sabbath, honoring God in our relationships, etc. We have only touched on some of them, but these are some that we normally don't think of. And So I want to ask you tonight, have I correctly read... Has it all come from, from books that we value? Would you agree? Do you think it was put there for a reason, or was it only good for uh, the time that she was living in? No, it's true for our day. You know, I would love to think that the St. Joy Church would say, we choose to die to self, because that's what it really takes. We choose to die to self and say, God, if this is what you're calling us to, we believe that it's worth going to the trouble to receive that experience that will bring the Holy Spirit. Time is late. God is looking for people. Why can't it be you? Why can't it be you? Why can't it be Rose and I? Why can't it be all of us? It's got to start somewhere. And I believe it'll happen if we go beyond just praying. You know, it says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. We were reading about that last night. There's a part we need to make. We need to make decisions. Uh, God will come in and bless. He can't do a work if we do not agree. Uh, and she uses words like, He cannot and will not bless when certain conditions exist. And if we truly make the decision, then it's just better to say, in our church, we don't expect revival, we don't want revival, we're not talking about revival, and just believe that God will not be with you as He'd like to be. Okay? So as we close tonight, I'd like us to all... Uh, Maybe pray in groups of two or three or as families. And just talk to God about uh, the things that you've read, as I've been reading, and the things that you've heard. And uh, have the beginning of a discussion and continue the discussion at home. And say, God, we want to be real. We want to be serious. We want to be true in every way. Not to work our way into heaven. Salvation's based on Jesus from beginning to end. Don't misunderstand. But he will save a holy people with a character like His. God's made full provision. Okay